Well, it's good to see you again this morning, and what a wonderful conference this has been already, and I trust the Lord will save even the better part uh, for the last. As I have uh, come this morning, they've asked me to talk about two books uh, by a very obscure author named Stephen J. Lawson. Um, If you ever meet him, run (laughs) away. Um, Two books that uh, that I have written, uh, among others, um, but are offered back in the bookstore. This one is called Made in Our Image. And what this is, is a refuting of, in the present day, low views of God. And really, a making God in our own image rather than God making us in His image. And it's a study of the attributes of God in reality, uh, which is really the ultimate paradigm by which we see every area of theology. We see them through the character and the attributes of God. Further, we see all of life through the attributes of God. It's the ultimate template. It's the ultimate lens or glasses that we put before our eyes by which we accurately see the world around us and by which we most clearly see the truth of Scripture. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so, uh, this book, Made in Our Image, the subtitle says, What Shall We Do with a User-Friendly God? And uh, I think you would enjoy uh, reading it and be helped. Uh, This is a book called The Legacy, What Every Father Should, uh, What Every Father Wants to Leave His Child. Uh, I have four children, three sons, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, We are into discipleship. At, at my house, and I have a daughter, and her name is Peter. <laughs> so she left her nets to come follow uh, in our family. Uh, no, her name is Grace Ann, and um, I wrote this book several years ago when they were all at home, and I was in the midst of parenting, and I gathered some men together in the church uh, where I was pastoring. And I led them on a study of Ephesians 5 and 6. The fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. And children are to honor their father and mother, etc., etc. I took those verses and and broke out ten, um, ten defining parts of a legacy that every father should pass on 10 core values that every father should build into the life of his children. Proverbs talks about how honorable it is to leave um, a financial inheritance to children. Uh, My father passed away a couple years ago and left um, a portion of an inheritance for me. But far more important was what my father built into me when I was under his roof. And I carry that influence with me wherever I go. In a very real sense, he still sits on my shoulder and is in my ear and is still speaking, uh, though dead, yet he speaks. That's a lasting influence that a father should leave with his children. So, this book 
defines 10 core values that every father should leave his child. Uh, Some of you uh, are not yet married, some of you are single, and it may not directly address where you are, though you young ladies, this is the kind of man you need to marry, is a man who wants to build these kind of values into the family that you would raise. And for those of you, like myself, my children have grown up and they've left home, but uh, for those of you who are grandchildren or grandparents, um, this is how you want to come alongside your son or your daughter, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, and help them as they raise their children. So, enough said on that. I'm so glad to be back with you. The time that we had last night was a, was a very good time. It was a very sobering time in many ways. I went back to my room and just contemplated what all I said from this passage of Scripture um, I stand by it, uh, strong words, um, but we need to have those strong words. Well, uh, in this session, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Uh, Luke chapter 14, and though the text was just read, I want to read it one more time. Um, I want to even hear it come out of my own mouth. Uh, Luke chapter 14, and I'm just going to read the opening verses, though our exposition will cover the entire literary unit. I want to read just these beginning verses. The title of this message is, It Will Cost You Everything. And before I read this, let me just say this. When I was in high school, I played football, American football, Real football, <laughs> not little sissy football with shorts on and that kind of thing. I'm talking about you have to have a helmet and shoulder pads and you run into each other. Um, and I did well enough to receive a full scholarship. The next four years, everything was paid for, for my education. Um, my tuition was free. My room was free, my food was free, uh, my laundry was free, my tutors were free, uh, my travel was free, Um, everything that uh, I needed was free. Can't tell you how happy my father was about that. (laughs) And not for one year or two years, but for the next four years. Not one cent did I pay or my father pay for anything. And yet, when I signed the dotted line, Texas Tech University owned me. It wasn't just a free pass to go to parties. They told me when I would wake up. They told me when I'd go to sleep. They told me what classes I would take. They told me what grades I had to make. They actually expected me to come to practice. Can you believe that? (laughs) They told me what time I had to be at practice. Um, Throughout the entire off-season, that was far harder than the season. In the off-season, the workouts, the lifting weights, 
the agility drills, the running the stadium stairs, the running marathon miles, all of that. They, they would weigh me daily. They would monitor my weight, uh, doctor visits. Here's the point. It didn't cost me one thin dime to go to college for four years. But I want you to know it cost me everything. Blood, sweat, toil, tears, everything that I had to give for four years, it was expected to me of me to give, and I gave it. It's the same way with discipleship. It's the same way with being a Christian. You haven't paid one thin dime for your salvation. It was paid in full by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon the cross, he said, it is finished to tell us die. It is paid in full. The debt, your, debt of cancella- uh, your certificate of debt has been canceled. And the entirety of your redemption has been paid by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, you're not free to live however you want to live. Because you've been bought with a price. And you're under new management. You're under new ownership. And you don't belong to you. You belong to the one who bought you and who paid the price for you. And now every moment of every day, it is incumbent upon you to follow Him, to serve Him, to sacrifice for Him, to give your life day by day by day to Him again and again and again, to take up a cross and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, though your salvation has not cost you anything, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that was laid upon Jesus Christ when He suffered and bled and died upon the cross. But you're not free to live however you want to live. If you have been genuinely converted, if you have been authentically regenerated by the Spirit of God and birthed into the kingdom of heaven, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you to die to self, to live for Christ, to advance to the front lines of spiritual warfare, to suffer persecution, to suffer the rejection of the world, to suffer repentance, to go all the way in obedience, to deny yourself and to take up a cross and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And to think that it would not cost you anything, and that, in fact, God would spend the rest of your Christian life pampering you like a spoiled little kid and just providing you whatever whimsical idea you thought that you could come up with and that you use God simply as a means to get what you want is the clearest evidence you've never even come close to the narrow gate. You've never even smelled the narrow gate. You, you have never even been in the vicinity of the narrow gate, much less even entered through it. 
Because every true believer in Jesus Christ is a bondservant of Christ. And we are slaves of Christ. And a slave lives in the household of his master and exists not to be pampered by his master, but for you to invest your life in serving your master and making whatever sacrifice is needed and necessary in order to bring honor and glory to him. So this message is entitled, It Will Cost You Everything. And whatever it is you have to give, that's what's going to be required for you to give. You're going to have to give your time. You're going to have to give your talent. You're going to have to give your treasure. You're going to have to give your influence. Everything that you have to give is on the table and is to be held with an open hand to be used for the glory of God. This passage that we're looking at today is a fatal death blow to the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. This passage that we are looking at today stands in total contradistinction to everything it stands for. This call of Christ to discipleship And to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ could not be any more antithetical to what the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we shall look at today is what is necessary to even enter through the narrow gate and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what we shall look at is absolutely necessary to even continue to go down the path in the kingdom of God in order to follow daily after the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a critical text. This is a pivotal text. This is a foundational text that opens up for us what it is to be a true, authentic, blood-bought disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want us to look very carefully at what our Lord says. I want to begin by just reading the first three verses, and Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of this. But in Luke chapter 14, and beginning in verse 25, Luke records the context and the setting, and then he records the words of our Lord. These are permanently recorded in the Bible so that every generation upon every continent down through the centuries would have to stare face to face with this text. This is what Luke records. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, he cannot, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, 
cannot, cannot, cannot be my disciple. Jesus is speaking in a manner in which he understands there are many wannabe followers who have just fallen in with the crowd. And how easy it is to hide in the crowd and to be a part of a popular movement. And Jesus now sifts through the crowd. I want you to note first, number one, in verse 25, the crowd. Please note, Luke records, now large crowds. Not just a crowd, but large crowds Plural, not just crowds, plural, but large crowds, plural. There are no doubt thousands of people who are following after the Lord Jesus Christ at this point as he is on his way to Jerusalem. And as he is on his way to Jerusalem, these large crowds were going along with him. That doesn't mean they were following him in the sense that he will articulate in the next several verses. No, they're just a part of the crowd. They're just going along. Most of them are unconverted. Most of them are uncommitted. Now, some are curious because a lot of people are just curious about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he is a very captivating figure and an individual. Some are there because just of a crowd mentality. No one wants to eat at a restaurant when no one is there. No one wants to go to a movie and you're the only person in the movie theater. You don't want to go to a soccer game and, and just be the only person in the stands. You want to be where the crowd is, where the action is, where the energy is. Uh, there, 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 is uh, there are the vibes to draw from being in a crowd, and people are just attracted to a movement and to a, to a crowd. And, and no doubt that is what is taking place here as the word is, is spreading and percolating. And then still others have religious sympathies, as Jesus is talking about heaven and hell and, and God and, and, and the world. People are instinctively religious. They're not saved. They're not converted. They're just instinctively religious. And so how easy it is to be a part of a crowd and just to be anonymous in a crowd where there's no commitment, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. You just get to hide in a crowd. And you can remain uncommitted. In fact, you can just take the benefits, but not give any of the duties or responsibilities. And within, when you're in a crowd, you don't have to declare your allegiance. Uh, you, you don't have to, to, uh, to give your loyalty. And it's so easy just to look religious. Because you're at a religious gathering. How easy it is just to to sound spiritual in a crowd. And so Jesus understood this, and in verse 25, we read, and he turned. That means he stopped walking to Jerusalem. He actually stopped and turned around to look at these large crowds 
who were following after him, and he turned and said to them, and he will address them. He, he will look them square in the eyes because he understands how easy it is for them just to be pouring out of their houses and stepping off their fishing boats and, and, and all of the rest and come out of the marketplace and just go along with him. So Jesus will stop and he will set the terms for what it is to actually follow him. He's not trying to get bigger crowds. In reality, he's trying to thin out the crowd. Because he would rather have genuine followers who are fewer in number than large crowds who have no real saving relationship with him. And so as Jesus now turns and speaks to them, he speaks to us today. He speaks through his written word. Uh, He is still speaking in this hour through the scripture. And what he had to say to the crowd so long ago, he says to you and me here today, he is setting the terms on what it is to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And the one who issues the call sets the terms. And we do not set the terms. Uh, The terms are established by him. So having seen the crowds, I want you to note second in verse 26, the commitment. Because Jesus now states what is necessary to be a true follower in his kingdom. And what he has to say is very soul-searching. He says in verse 26, if anyone, please note how open and wide this is. If anyone, be you male or female, be you black or white, be you rich or poor, be you educated or uneducated, whether you be socially polished or, or uncouth. If anyone comes to me, now stop right there. To come to Christ is to believe in Christ. To come to Christ is to enter into a saving relationship with Christ. And Jesus will say in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. If anyone comes to me, he will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And that's what we call Hebrew parallelism, where the A line and the B line mean the same thing. And to believe in Christ is to come to Christ. And to come to Christ is to believe in Christ. It is synonymous with saving faith. And Jesus will say in John 7, verse 37, Come unto me, or if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And in Matthew 11, verse 28, he will say, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To come to Christ is to come to faith in Christ. So he says, if anyone comes to me, this is very evangelistic. This is on the front end. He is speaking to a, a, to a large gathering of unconverted people who are the, large, the major portion of this group. Now note what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, oh, that word just 
We wouldn't even allow our children to say the word growing up. You know, you may not say you hate your brother. You may say you hate vegetables, but you cannot say you hate your brother. I mean, this word has an edge to it. I mean, this this word has a shock value to it. But notice what it is in relationship to. And does not hate his own father and mother. What kind of religion is this? And wife and children and brothers and sisters. And yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. You know the difference between can and may? May is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability. And what Jesus is saying, except this be true and define your saving faith, there is no way you can be my disciple. Now, how are we to take this? Hate? How, how are we to take this? I mean, isn't the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother? Is Jesus contradicting the very law that, that he gave? Uh, did not Jesus say on the, in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies? Yes, he said that. And did not Jesus, as he was hanging upon the cross, look down at John and at his mother and say, Son, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. Jesus is loving his mother to the very last breath upon the cross. And does not Paul say that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church? And the answer to all that is, is yes. And does not the Bible say that if you do not love the members of your own family and give to them and care for them as they have need, that you are worse than an infidel? So what, what does this mean that I'm supposed to hate my father and mother and brother and sister and my family, those who, that I love the most, who I have the closest relationship with? Well, we must have Scripture interpret Scripture. The greatest interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. Uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, used to say, as only a diamond can cut a diamond, only Scripture can rightly divide Scripture. And so in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, we have the words of Christ at another place at another time that really becomes the key that unlocks our understanding of what he is saying here in Luke chapter 14. Because what Jesus is saying in Luke 14 is a figure of speech known as hyperbole, in which you make an exaggerated statement in order to make a strong point. And it becomes very memorable. You can't get it out of your head. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37... Jesus says the very same thing, yet with other words. And this will give us insight into what he actually means in Luke 14. And Jesus says in this text, Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Light bulbs should be coming on inside of our our minds right now that we now see it. What Jesus is saying is that we must love Him more than anyone or anything else in this world or you cannot be His disciple. Jesus is requiring not just a place in your life, He is demanding the preeminence in your life or He will have no place in your life. Either Jesus is number one in your life or Jesus is nothing in your life. He's not going to ride in your back seat, my friend. He's not going to be life insurance. He's not going to be used so you can get success and money and all of those things. No, if you're going to follow after Christ, you're going to have to die to all these desires and you're going to have to desire Him and His glory and His honor and to follow Him. He's not going to follow you. You're going to follow Him. Now, if he were following you, he would just be a little genie popping out of a bottle and you just rub it a little bit in prayer and you name it and claim it and he's going to follow you and he's just going to be like your servant. He's going he's to give you every little whimsical desire that you would have. But no, the Bible never says that Christ will follow us. He's not just a little add-on to our life. No, we must stop We must repent, we must do a total about-face, and we must change direction, and now we follow Him. So what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 14, come back to the text. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, when He says we must hate father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, what He is saying is not that we are to not love them, He is saying that we must love Him more. And I want to tell you something. If you will love Jesus Christ more, He will give you more love for your father and mother. If you will love Jesus most, He will give you a greater love for your wife or for your husband. And He will give you, He will pour unconditional agapeo love out of heaven from the throne of grace, and you will have a new capacity to love like you've never had before. And young people down here at the front, that's why you need to marry a Christian. You need to be equally yoked with another believer who's pulling in the same direction, and you need to marry someone who loves Jesus Christ like you love Jesus Christ, because only then can they truly love you. And you want to truly love them. So what Jesus is saying here is that we must follow Him with supreme devotion and supreme loyalty and supreme allegiance. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things. Food, drink, clothing, All these other things will be added unto you. You know what's bogus with the prosperity gospel? They reverse the whole thing. They don't say seek first the kingdom of God and then 
these other things will be supplied, they see Jesus as a means to an end. They do not see Jesus as the end, the object, the aim, the goal. He is simply a pathway to get what they really want, which is more of this world. But look again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me, and by the way, there's no other way to come to him. This is the narrow gate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, we understand what this means now, to love less. If anyone does not hate, but Jesus purposely chose this edgy word so that this would echo in our minds and grab us by the lapels and sit us up, sit us up straight in our seat, that we would be sobered as we hear this. There's not one drop of easy believism in this. It's all or nothing. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, those whom we love the most in this life, And then he goes for the knockout punch. Someone that you love even more than your father and mother. Yeah, you know. <laughs> don't sit there and look at me like that. You know, you know exactly who this is. It's who you look at every morning when you are brushing your teeth and you're looking into the mirror. It's you. You say, well, I don't really love myself that much. Yeah, you do. You're taking care of yourself. You're protecting yourself. There's a reason you look both ways before you cross the street. It's not because you're trying to preserve cars. <laughs> you're trying to preserve your own life. It's, it's instinctive. I mean, that's why suicide is so unnatural. It's, it's counterintuitive because there's built into the, the human psyche a, a self-preservation, and that really flows out of a, of a desire to care for yourself. But Jesus says that unless you hate your own life, unless you love you, unless you love you less than you love him, you're going to have to go get in another line. Because there's only one line that leads into the kingdom and it's people who have come to the place where Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price and that he is the treasure that's hidden in the field and you will give anything and everything to have him and he is more important to you than life itself. And what does self-love look like? Listen, we're all experts in self-love. We've all majored in this before we entered into the kingdom of heaven. What does self-love look like? It's self-centeredness. It's self-preoccupation. Listen, when you see a picture of you and there's five other people in the picture, who are you looking at first? <laughs> yeah, you know. Now, this is the selfie generation. It's just instinctive within us. It's a self-flattery. 
It's self-preoccupation. It's self-indulgence. It is self-pampering. It is self-promotion. It is self-ease. It is self-pleasures. It is self-exaltation. It is self-esteem. It is self-absorption. It is being self-consumed. It is being self-focused. It is being self-fixed. And that's all going to have to die. All of it. In me and in you. To ever sniff the narrow gate and to enter through the kingdom. If you're going to live for Christ, you're going to have to die to self. And there's going to have to be a crucifixion before there can be a resurrection. That leads us now, number three, to the cross. Jesus now makes one of the most demanding statements to ever come from his lips. He doesn't back off. He intensifies what he is saying. We've seen the crowds, and we've seen the commitment. I want you to now see the cross. Because Jesus, in verse 27, will reaffirm what he said in verse 26. But he'll tighten the noose. He'll cinch up the rope around us. Notice what he says in verse 27. Whoever, that echoes verse 26, if anyone, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So how are you going to die to self? How are you going to have a how are you going to have your own funeral? And the answer is verse 27. He says whoever does not carry his own cross and when Jesus said this no one in the Roman empire at this time would have mistaken what Jesus meant by this. A cross was the first century electric chair. The cross was the instrument of death that was used in capital punishment. The cross pictured a condemned criminal who had been judged by the higher authority and found to be guilty and the death sentence has been dropped upon his head. And he would then be forced to pick up the crossbeam of the very cross upon which he would be crucified and carry it through the streets of Jerusalem. And the people would turn out and they would line the streets and they would jeer and they would taunt and they would mock. And it was intended to be public shame and public humiliation, and by carrying your cross publicly, you are testifying that I am guilty of treason against the higher court of Rome. And it was the death march as you would carry your cross through the streets of that town, in this case Jerusalem. You are marching to your execution site, and it is as though you are already dead. 
You are a dead man walking. You have no rights. You have no authority. And you are testifying by carrying this cross that I am guilty as charged, I am condemned, and I am a dead man. And I have no life. And I am in submission under the higher authority that has brought its sentence. And there would be a placard. And the charge for the crime would be on the placard and it would be nailed to the top of the cross. That is why when they crucified Jesus, they put Jesus King of the Jews. That wasn't to point out who he is. That was the charge that was brought against him. That he has committed blasphemy. And that he is guilty of claiming to be the king of the Jews. So when Jesus says this, that whoever does not carry his own cross, it's not talking about Jesus' cross. Jesus hasn't even died yet. This says, His own cross. And if you're to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is a cross for you. There is a cross for me. There is no disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no disciple of Jesus Christ who is not carrying his or her cross. And in Mark's account, He adds that we must carry this cross daily. It's not just one-time event as we enter into the kingdom, but for the rest of our lives, we are cross-bearing disciples of Jesus Christ. And what does this say? This says that we we agree that we are guilty as charged that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have been weighed in the balances of heaven and found wanting, and the wages of sin is death, and we confess and agree with this charge, and we now carry our cross in submission to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. We have bowed the knee to King Jesus And we now openly and publicly in the streets where we live, we carry our cross. And it is a testimony to all that we agree with the charges that have been brought against us and we are under the authority of Christ and we are in submission to the Lordship of Christ or you cannot be His disciple. Did you get that? Disciple is the word that leaps out of the page. It's the last word in verse 26. It's the last word in verse 27 in the climactic position. And it is found again in verse 33. A disciple is a true believer. It's not someone who shows up on a Saturday morning Bible study wanting a little bit more. If you're not a disciple, you're outside the kingdom. A disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple. In fact, the word Christian doesn't even come about until Acts chapter 11. And at that, it was a a term of derision and mockery. The word Christian just means little Christ. 
And that's what they hurled at the believers. We start, they started calling them little Christ. It's a diminutive form of, of Christ. And the believers so loved to be called Christians that what the world meant as slander, they embraced it. Yes, we are Christ followers. Yes, we are little Christ. But the original term to define a true, authentic, saved believer is you are a disciple. A disciple means you are a you are a learner and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about those who are in the kingdom. He's talking about those who will, who, who will enter the kingdom and who will follow him in the life of the kingdom. In fact, please note, let me draw this to your attention. Verse 26 says, if anyone comes to me, and then in verse 27, he says, come after me. It's a package deal. It's not either or, it's both and. That's what we talked about last night, if you'll remember, the narrow gate and the narrow road. It's a package deal. You go through the narrow gate, it's not over, it's just starting. You go down the narrow gate, down the narrow path. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's talking about, is for those who come to him, they will then come after him for the rest of their lives. To carry one's cross meant death to self. Do you get that? It means you acknowledge you've been judged by a greater authority of a higher court. You've been found guilty and condemned. You are sentenced to death. You are subject to the public confession. You are in submission to this higher authority. You are now on the death march for the rest of your life. And you are marching as one who is now under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now I want to bore down a little deeper with you. Look at verse 26 again. Verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me. Christianity is Christ. Come after me. To be a Christian means you believe in Christ. You love Christ. You follow Christ. You adore Christ. You honor Christ. You glorify Christ. You serve Christ. Your whole life is Christ. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is... Go ahead and say it. Christ, and to die is gain. And if you're not living for Christ, for you to die is loss. Because you're not going to go be with Christ. But if you are living for Christ, for you to die is gain, because you'll go be with Christ forever and ever and ever. Now, at the end of verse 27, when he says, come after me, he's saying, you're going to have to move out. Because Jesus is moving out. Jesus is not standing still. He is headed to Jerusalem. 
He is walking the dusty paths. He is moving out at a point where the Father is taking him. And so for them to come after him, they've got to move out. But Jesus is not talking about geographics. He's talking about lifestyle. That we will walk as he walked. That we will talk as he talked. That we will believe what he taught. We will speak as he spoke. We will act as He acted. We will react as He reacted. We will rejoice over that which He rejoiced over. We will weep over that which He wept over. It's in the present tense, by the way. Come after me. That means every moment of every day, you are to come after the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, will you please note, He doesn't tell them where He's going you just need to get behind me and follow me. And we want to know the where question. We want to know the how question. The only question you need to know is the who question. Who are you following? We're not to follow a church. We're not to follow a denomination. We're not to follow a ministry. We're not to follow a cause. We're to follow Christ. And you need to get into a church to follow Christ. And if you're not in a local church, you're not really following Christ. But in reality, what you're following is the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you some adverbs on how you need to follow Christ, what this requires of you. Number one, you're going to have to follow Him personally. No one else can follow Christ for you. This is your decision. You're going to have to own this. This is an act of your will, not your parents, not someone else. You're going to have to follow Christ personally or individually. Second, you're going to have to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Uh, You can't straddle the fence. Uh, You can't play all ends into the middle. You're going to have to follow Christ and nothing else at all. You're going to have to be all in to follow Christ. Third, you're going to have to follow Him permanently. There's no turning back. You've burned your bridges behind you. There's no going back to the world. This is not a short journey. This is not a weekend conference. This is a long obedience in the same direction. You're going to have to follow repentantly. You're going to have to turn your back on the world and turn your back on a life of sin. And you're going to have to break from the pack of this world and come out of the pack and repentantly, personally follow Christ. You're going to have to follow obediently. You you are under authority, which means you're under His Word. And you're going to have to keep His commandments in order to be a follower of of Jesus Christ. You can't do your own thing anymore. You can't go your own way anymore. You can't make all your own decisions anymore. You now obediently follow Jesus Christ. You're going to have to follow Him openly, out in the open, as they carried their cross through the streets of Jerusalem. You're going to have to fly your flag. Everyone's going to have to know where you stand. There are no secret disciples in the army of Christ. It's all out in the open. You're going to have to wear your colors. You're going to have to follow Him comprehensively, meaning every area of your life is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to put both feet onto this path, and every step 
that you undertake is on this path following Christ. You can have no secret compartments in your life. You can have no little cul-de-sacs that go down other little paths. It is all on this path. Every area, your work life, your school life, your family life, your personal life, your recreational life, it's all a part of following Christ. You're going to have to follow Him unconditionally. You're going to have to be willing to go anywhere, pay any price, do anything, go with anyone, whatever He requires of you. And it may not be the way you think your life is going to play out. It is unconditional. You've turned your life over like a, like a, a signed check, but He will write in the amount and what it will require of you and where you'll go. You're going to have to follow Him exclusively. It's not Jesus and the crowd. It's not Jesus and your friends. It's not Jesus and what you want to do. No, there, He drowns out every other voice that is competing for your attention. You are following Him exclusively. You're not looking to the left. You're not looking to the right. You're not looking back over your shoulder. You are fixing your eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith. And finally, you need to follow Him immediately. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next semester, not next year. This is in the present tense. You must, without delay, He is calling you right now through this text of Scripture. He's calling every person in this building to right now step out and come after the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all what is required in these few little words that are in verse 27. If anyone is to come after me, he must carry his cross and die to this world and die to self. Or he cannot be my disciple. Next, note the cost. (laughs) There's no fine print in Jesus' contract. He puts it up front on the front end. Almost as if to say, now don't sign up for this. Unless you count the cost. Unless you weigh what this means for your life. And what Jesus will now do is give two parables. Parable 1, then parable 2. Parable 1 is in verses 28 to 30. Parable 2 is in verse 31 and 32. Now let me tell you what these say. If you're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost you. That's the first parable. The second parable is this. If you don't follow Christ, it's going to cost you. And it's going to cost you even more. It's going to cost you either way. There's no easy way out of this. Note the first parable. The lesson of this, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to count the cost. Because it's going to cost you. Note verse 28. For which one of you 
when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. What he's talking about is a person's life. What he's talking about is the cost factor to be a follower of Christ. And that cost is abundantly clear after looking at verse 26 and 27. There was no one in the crowd that day who scratched their head and said, I wonder what he's talking about. Is he talking about a building program down at the church? No, they all understood. He's talking about me. He's talking about my life. So he says in verse 29, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Verse 30 saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, how embarrassing, how humiliating it would be to begin to go along with Jesus and give the appearance that you are following, but once you get into this, you go, oh, I didn't realize that I was going to have to suffer for my faith. I didn't realize there would be opposition or persecution. I didn't realize I was going to have to sacrifice. I didn't realize I was going to have to go anywhere, anytime, anyplace and and be available to Christ and be under the Lordship. Oh, I thought He was just going to supply my needs. I thought He existed simply to make me rich or to make me famous or to make me successful. I didn't know there was a cost factor... And so he stops building. And the question is, was he ever saved to begin with? The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. It was a Judas faith. It was a sham salvation. It was a fraudulent faith. You and I must count the cost. And the cost is the death of our life. Though we still live, we're dead to self-desires and fleshly desires. And we're alive to Christ. And there are no exceptions to this. Now the second parable is the other side. What if you say, well, I, <laughs> I'm just not into this. I'm, I'm going to sit this one out. I, I, I don't want either. Okay, then the second parable. If you do not follow Christ, it's going to cost you eternally. Notice what he says in verse 31. Or what king, when he, se- when he seeks out to meet another king... I'm just going to tell you how this goes on the front end. The first king are these followers. The second king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Or what king, when he seeks to, uh, when he s- seeks to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men. Everyone in that crowd that day were those with 
and who were unconverted were, were a king over their own little realm, over their own little kingdom, over their own little life where they make all their own decisions, they set their own laws, and they just self-govern their own little part of the universe. And they have only 10,000 kings in this parable. There's another king coming. And he is King Jesus. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And in this parable, it is 20,000 times 20,000 times 20,000 times 20,000 to the 20,000th power. And then on is what he has at his disposal. What insanity, what insanity it would be to go up against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 32, or else while the other is still far away. That's Jesus. And he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Will he not accept them? If you had two brain cells connected between your ears, you would, you would accept his terms of peace and call this whole thing off. Because if you don't, he is going to damn your soul and torment you in hell forever, and it will glorify him. And he will be the one in hell inflicting the pain in the presence of his holy angels. And he offers to you terms of peace. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. But they're the only terms of peace. And the only way to accept his terms of peace is unconditional surrender. To lay down your life and to give Him all that you are and join His legion and now serve Him and fight for Him and fight His battles. If not, He will slay you. He will slit your throat and stuff you down into hell. And you deserve to go there because you have trampled underfoot His precious blood. Hell cannot be hot enough for you. If you do not accept his terms of peace, this is the issue. And Jesus wanted this little crowd, this huge crowd, to know if you're going to follow me, it's going to be on my terms, not your dictates. And you can remain a little king over your little realm, your tiny little insignificant life, and think you're running everything. And you do not know that you do not know. You surrender to me, Jesus says. So look at the next verse, verse 33. This thing won't end. Jesus keeps putting more fodder into the cannon. He's not diluting or watering down as we go into this. He's upping the ante. So in verse 33, so then, bottom line, so then, none of you, None of you. None of me, none of you, none of us. No exceptions. No way to think around this. 
There's no angle to work to find a loophole in the contract. None of you can be my disciple. He keeps saying that. He said it in verse 26, said it in verse 27. Now, now he says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Sound like a prosperity gospel to you? I don't think so. You don't get, you give up. You're going to have to give up everything you have and everything that you are and everything you ever thought you had or are. And what is this saying? Is this saying you have to literally give up? You've got to go have a garage sale? List everything on eBay? Just self-liquidate? Well, don't do that or we'll have to take care of you. (laughs) Because you're my brother and sister. That's not what this is calling for. When we take the entire rest of the Bible into consideration, what Jesus is saying is you're under new management now. And everything that you have, you now recognize, doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Christ. And it's all His stuff. He made it. He gave it to you. You're just a steward of His possessions. Listen, it's not wrong to have things. What's wrong is for things to have you. And what Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, nothing can have mastery over you. Your car is not your car anymore. It's his car. Your clothes are not your clothes anymore. They're his clothes. Whatever money is left over at the end of the month, that's not yours anymore. It's not discretionary. That's his money. But it's not just possessions. It's your time. It's what he's... It's your talent. It's everything that he's given to you. It's all transferred over under his authority, under his management, under his ownership. It all belongs to him. You don't own anything. You don't even own your life. He owns it all. You're just a steward who has been entrusted with his possessions. And on the last day, you're going to stand before him. And you're going to have to give an explanation for how you used his stuff. Did you use it for yourself? Or did you use it for His glory? Now, when you listen to the prosperity preachers, what what are you hearing? Is this money so we can go to mission fields, so that we can reach the world for Christ, or so they can have a private jet? It is blasphemous what they preach. So finally, the caution. I don't know how long I've gone, but here's the caution. I get to leave, who cares? (laughs) Find me in America, you know. (laughs) That's find with a D, not find me with an E. All right, the caution. 
Here's the final caution. Jesus gives a final warning. You cannot be half in and half out. You can't be half for this world and half for heaven. You can't be half for yourself and half about Christ. You've got to be all in. So in verse 34, he says, Therefore, salt is good. He's using another analogy here. Yes, salt is good. It preserves meat. It prevents spoiling. It gives flavor. But, if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? And some salt in Palestine was false salt. It was half salt, half gypsum. And this false salt would lose its savor. Real salt doesn't lose its savor. Fake salt loses its favor, savor, and with what will it be seasoned? It wasn't really salt. It wasn't good salt. It wasn't real salt. It just gave the outward appearance of salt. It made an initial good impression. It smelled like salt. You could lick it. It might taste initially like salt, but over a short period of time, you would soon realize that That was just the outward facade. That was just the external package. In reality, there was no salt on the inside. It wasn't real. And so Jesus says, yes, real salt is good, but there is this other salt that if it becomes tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's a rhetorical question, the answer of which is nothing. Nothing can be done for it. And so he says in verse 33, it is useless. You understand what that means? It has no use in the kingdom of heaven. Zero. Less than zero. It it has absolutely no use for the kingdom of God. You're just occupying a seat in church. You're just breathing God's air on this earth. You're just hanging out. But as far as what God is doing in His church or in this world, you are completely useless. Useless. And in this, in this tiny little metaphor, he says it is useless, this half salt, half gypsum, it's useless for the soil. In other words, it can't even fertilize. And then he says, or for the manure pile. It will not, it's, it's, it's not even useful to retard the stench of dung. Useless. That's what a half-committed disciple is. Because he's no disciple. That's what a crowd follower is. He's not even useful for the toilet. These are Jesus' words. Self-indulgent, world-loving, self-centered, half-hearted listeners. So Jesus concludes by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about spiritual ears. Is this registering on your radar? 
Jesus is saying, are you hearing what I am saying to you? Is this connecting with the depth of your soul? Because not to obey is not to hear at all. I conclude with this. Someone has written this. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look up, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I do not have to be right. I do not have to be first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy. I will not ponder at the pool of popularity. I will not meander at the, or in the maze of mediocrity. I will not back up, let up, or shut up until I have preached up, prayed up, stored up, and stayed up the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until He returns. I must give until I drop. I must preach until all know. And I must work until He comes. And when He comes back to this earth, He will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal in a Dutch Reformed church. (laughs) Are you a disciple? That's the issue on the table. Not did you grow up in church. Not do you go to a Bible study. Not are you at this conference. That's not the question. You can go to hell from here. Are you a disciple? Because you cannot follow unless you're a disciple. But remember, he says, if anyone, his arms are open wide to the crowd. But if we follow, we follow on his terms, not ours. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this is overwhelming. This is unbelievable. Who who then can be saved? We know with men it is impossible, but with you all things are possible. And we praise you for your sovereign grace. And we praise you for your effectual grace that works so powerfully in the hearts 
of those for whom it is intended, and you draw them out of the crowd, and you bring them to yourself. And that's what you've done with most of us here today. This is so opposite of what we would have ever thought our life would have ever done. Because we once just lived for ourselves, and we lived for this world, and we lived for what we could see and touch and handle and feel and deposit into a bank account. And now you've done this work of grace within us, and we live for another world. We live for for you whom we cannot see, but our hope is in you. Father, thank you for this amazing work of discipleship that you have begun in us. How we do love you more than anything or anyone else in this world. You are our chief object of affection. It is to you that we give our devotion and our allegiance. And Lord, if there be anyone here today who is not yet a disciple of Christ, awaken them out of their slumber. Awaken them out of their their unconverted state that they must see that they can't just go along with the crowd anymore. They, they, They can't just be swept up in a movement, but they must personally, individually, repentantly, humbly come to faith in Christ. So God, work your grace into hearts here today. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.